We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh of New Bloom. Thanks for having me. And Nicola Smith, a freelance journalist based here in Taiwan, who has been published in The Guardian and Time magazine. Thanks for having me too. Tonight we'll be discussing President Tsai Ing-wen's tumbling support ratings, questions over the now mothballed fourth nuclear power plant, Taiwan's place in a US human trafficking report, and meat cleavers. But we're going to begin with something rather special and some breaking news this morning and an announcement by the U.S. State Department that it has approved a 1.4 billion U.S. dollar arms sale to Taiwan. And that's the first such deal with the island since President Donald Trump took office. And officials say that the arms package comprises of seven items and these include SM-2 standard missiles, K-54 lightweight torpedo conversion kits, software and other upgrades to the electronic warfare system which supports supports Taiwan's Jilong-class destroyers, air-to-ground missiles and HARM harm anti-radar missiles. Now, State Department spokeswoman Heather Nurit said that the Trump administration has notified Congress of its intent to approve the seven proposed deals and that total comes in at 1.42 billion US dollars. The spokeswoman also went on to say that there have been no changes to Washington's One China policy and the approval of the arms deal is not in violation of the Taiwan's Relation Act and shows that the United States is resolved to support Taiwan's ability to maintain a sufficient self-defence policy. That happened this morning, Taiwan time, here on June the 30th, and it coincided with something in Hong Kong that's going on today. So, Nicola, do you think the timing of this announcement had anything to do with the big gathering in Hong Kong this morning? I certainly think that the timing is very important on this. Um, yes, I think it's likely that um, they did. That it was timed to coincide with um, with the twenty year anniversary, um, just because it's so significant to China. But I also think that. Um, I mean, the Taiwan arms package was going to go through anyway. It was always a question of timing. But I also think that it could be linked to Trump's recent dissatisfaction with China over North Korea. I mean, we saw the the tweet that went out uh, was a, a week or so ago um, where he he basically said that um, China had tried their best but not good enough. Uh, I can't remember the exact words. But um, it looks like on the face of it, it looks like it could be a bit of a negotiating tactic that uh, Trump could be using Taiwan as some kind of lever um, to get China to do more more on North Korea, but I'm speculating here really. So um, I think it's interesting that it, it also happened just after the US uh, declared China's tier three on the human trafficking report as well. I mean, I think all of these things are, are linked as, as a way to put pressure on China. So conspiracies there, Brian, or basically you agree? I think it's hard to say because I think there are a number of conflicting forces within the Trump administration. Um, it's really hard to know, you know, which force is in control at any given moment. For example, you know, we saw the fall of Steve Bannon and his very anti-China, you know, faction within the Trump administration, but the rise of Jared Kushner and his very pro-China faction. At the same time, then you have, you know, Rex Tillerson, the State Department, who is trying to keep the status quo and, you know, uh, apparently running around after Jared Kushner across the world now trying to, you know, solve diplomatic crises that uh, Kushner ultimately causes. Um, with the arms deal, you know, there's the question really of, you know, this is taken as re- reaffirming ties between the U.S. and Taiwan, the status quo. But 
you know, which forces behind this finally passing through, it's really hard to say. Um, there's questions previously that whether even there are the people within the State Department to actually approve the arms deal and do the paperwork for it, because of the fact that Trump administration has so much difficulty getting its uh, nominees and approved, and it did not come into office with, you know, a list of people that wanted hire for the State Department. Um, so I think, I think it's really hard to say, and it's really hard to say which direction the Trump administration is planning on going currently. But do you think it put a dampener on China's celebrations in Hong Kong today? Do you think Mr. Xi Jinping is not a happy bunny this morning? Um, I think he, it's just, I don't think he'll take it, you know, as indicating anything particularly new. Um, I think just too much is currently up in the air. Hong Kong is an issue that notably the Trump administration has never raised. Um, you know, Taiwan has actually come up more often, which is kind of the, goes against the flow, goes, goes against the trend in terms of news reportage. You know, there's a lot more focus on Hong Kong than Taiwan as of late. Right, there we go. There we have to leave the arms deal because it's breaking news and that's about all we know so far. But let's move on to the seemingly never-ending saga of the government's pension reform plan. Now, lawmakers are continuing their extraordinary legislative session this week and into next week. In fact, it's going to wrap up next Wednesday and they hope to review and pass the major draft bills on pension reform. And if you want some numbers of how many of these there are, well, the Draft Act on Civil Servant Pensions has 92 clauses while a bill on public school teacher retirement benefits has 96 and another on political appointees has 37 clauses. A lot of work and some of it has actually managed to pass this week despite filibusting by KMT lawmakers. And lawmakers this week passed bills that will cut retirement benefits for civil servants. They raised some retirement ages, scrapped the controversial 18% interest rate and limited the retirement benefits of public school teachers. But there's more to do. And of course the pension reform plan has drawn a lot of angry criticism. And while most of the protests were staged by the elderly and people of near retirement age, some of Taiwan's younger generation are also unhappy. And I spoke with one such opponent earlier this week, that being new party spokesman Wang Pingqing, and he had this to say. Uh, the DPP claims that the purpose of civil service pension reform is to save money for the country, but there are far more pressing issues that have nothing to do with civil service pension policies at stake, nor are these issues the, the responsibility of the pensioners. The real culprit behind excessive spending is poor policy making, the biggest example of which is halting of construction of nuclear power plant 4. The deferment of nuclear power plant force construction will result in a 200 billion NT expenditure, and taxpayers are going to foot the bill. We oppose the DPP taking away the civil service pension because government retirees are entitled to every bit of that money. They're not in the wrong. The DPP and these so-called civic groups who manipulate the system, including Tsai Ing-wen, are the ones who are wrong. Their wasteful spending far exceeds the savings of pension reform. We should continue to spread these ideas and concepts because I think a lot of young people have been misled. Young people feel like their economic situations are worse than before, so they project a lot of their frustrations onto retired civil servants. However, the civil servants haven't done anything wrong. They've paid their dues to society. The ones truly liable for the poor economy is the government, these officials who spread lies and write checks they can't cash. They need to come forward and take responsibility. So, Brian, of course, that's an interesting point that 
young people are being brought into this pen, this pension reform protest now after several weeks and even months, one could say, of it being mostly elderly people. Mm. I mean, this is an issue that could anger young people if they are public servants or if they are teachers because, you know, this affects them as well. But current protests are notably led by, you know, as people have noted, the elderly who are homogeneously Washington. And this is because the current protests are, are military. Um, you know, it's the retired military officers and, you know, troops and so forth that are currently, you know, still having an occupation outside the legislative ring and that have, you know, done the very dramatic actions attempting to storm the legislative ring. Um, will it actually catch on? I mean, that means a return to previous protests in which, you know, there were actually tens of thousands of people in the streets because, you know, back then, in last fall, when this became a, a hotly debated issue, the, it, was, it was more than just the military protesting. But, you know, it, the the current people leading the movement seem to be the military. And, you know, I, I actually just don't know if that will change. Right, Nicola, obviously pension reform is needed. But obviously, it looks like the government are going to go forward with their plans. Do you think these these protests are too little, too late, even though they started several months ago? Well, it's a question of what difference they're going to make. I mean, it's a democracy, so people have the right to express their own opinion. Um, but uh, of course, the pension for the pension system as it is is completely un- unsustainable. So you can't just carry on. Um, as before, uh, otherwise there's going to be no money in the pot. And and I would say, um, you know, for young people, um, even if they do join the protests, and you know, if if the system stays the way it is um, for decades to come, then there's just going to be nothing left by the time that they're they want to get their pension. So it's completely counterproductive if young people are, are kind of uh, wanting to keep the 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 status quo um something has to be done something has to give so yes protest but i think you know at some point there's going to have to be a compromise isn't there well, obviously the extraordinary legislative session wraps up next wednesday when the government hope all of these bills retiring pension bills that is will all be passed i mean do you see these protests continuing brian even after next wednesday I think so, because I think the KMT just realized this is an issue that, you know, its, its support base or elements of its support base are just very into. And so on one on the one hand, they're not going to let go. And on the other hand, I think the military veterans, particularly because, you know, they have more than just the pension reform as an issue to be dissatisfied with the DPP. You know, there's other issues regarding identity and, you know, uh, their views on Taiwan and China, which will kind of lead them to continue protests. I mean, I can even see this becoming like a long-term encampment outside the legislative run for years and years to come. But, you know, the question of whether it will it will actually capture a broader base i think i think it's unlikely but they will continue protests will definitely continue in some form because of course the issue is these people don't want their pensions cut now but there's some argument about well when when will the government be able to cut the pensions nicola someone's mm-hmm. got to suffer yeah well absolutely so you know you just have to take the hit at some point i mean um your projections say that um you know, pensions for civil servants could default by 2030 if if they carry on the way that they are just now. So, um, some government has to be brave enough to push through unpopular reforms. But um, really, I, I I don't see any alternative. Um, and I guess you know, proponents of pension reform would also say that uh, it would make society a lot more equal because you know we are talking about civil servants, teachers, and military. We aren't talking about the whole of Taiwanese society here. So these these pensions are much more generous uh, for civil servants, and and there is a lot of support for reform as well, just to kind of equalise um, society a little bit more. 
Right, and talking of unpopularity, apparently President Tsai Ing-wen's approval ratings have hit a new record low. Well, that according to the Taiwanese Public Opinion Foundation anyway, which released a poll this week showing that Tsai's support rating had slipped to 33.1%. And the foundation said that Tsai's approval rating had fallen 36.8 points from a high of 69.9% when she first took office. And it said that that represents a severe challenge to her administration. Now, the poll also found that 49.6% of respondents expressed dissatisfaction with the entirety of Tsai's administration, that includes the Premier, and discontent with Tsai's performance in the handling of ties with China rose to the highest level ever recorded at 58%. Now, of course, Brian, this is a poll, and of course, polls can be skewed in any way they so desire, the people that carry them out, of course. So do you think this poll is right or slightly skewed in one way? Um, I certainly do think it's a problem in Taiwan that polls skew in, you know, politically different directions. And, you know, that leads you to question how objective they are, which, you know, I think they aren't. But I also think that it is true that the Thai administration is definitely declining popularity. And, you know, I think that based on the history of the past three presidents, you know, we've just seen declines in popularity after a period in which they came into office calling for reform and change. You know, whether that's Chen Shui-bian as the first non-KMT president in Taiwanese history or Ma ying who was, you know, very popular when he was elected before public dissatisfaction grew, particularly in his second term. Um, so I think it's not surprising that, you know, as with her predecessors, Tsai would have a decline in popularity. Um, I, I, I just wonder if that's even just a permanent characteristic of Taiwanese society and Taiwanese government, that, you know, that the president eventually becomes unpopular. Right. I mean, Nicola, why do you mm. think Tsai is so unpopular? Oh, people just like to whinge, don't they? I mean, um, I, it's only a year into her presidency. Um, she promised a lot uh, when she was elected. Uh, a lot of the, the reforms that she promised haven't come to pass yet or aren't uh, making significant progress. But again, it's still early. It's still early days, you know. Um, I think she should be more worried about it if in three years' time this is what her polls are saying. Um, and I think um, any president um, in, whatever, in whatever country, um, general, the general trend is that they will suffer in the polls a year on. Yeah, Theresa May. Yeah, she's not doing so well. Fine example there. That, anyway, that didn't even take a year. No, no. <laughs> well, I don't know. There's also uh, Donald Trump. Who... <laughs> yeah, another one, yes, yes. So maybe they have something in common. Who? Theresa May and... and President um, Tsai Ing-wen and Donald Trump. All right. <laughs> Apart well, they, can, un- they could have another phone call about it, you know, have they a long could, discussion about do. this. But, um, I mean, Brian, do you think this, this, these really low numbers and, of course, these polls are going to mm. hamper the Tsai administration's ability to actually do anything? And do you see a, a cabinet reshuffle just around the corner? It's actually very odd because, you know, the, the cabinet reshuffle would be one way to signal that the Tsai administration wants to turn over a new leaf and, you know, recoup its popularity that it had during election campaigning. But the Tsai administration doesn't really want to go down the direction it seems currently, because I think it's viewed as as kind of stepping back from its current mandate or that, you know, showing weakness. Um, I think definitely the Tsai administration had a lot on its plate, but I think what really led to decline popularity was flip-flopping on many cru- crucial issues, uh, you know, being very unclear as to what stance you would take, you know, offending both sides by flip-flopping, but also just the failure to kind of take credit for her actual accomplishments, like, you know, on things that she could have taken credit for. 
as as a major accomplishment of her administration. She hasn't really done that very strongly. I think she's just a little too afraid to offend there. I mean, you know, pension reform is an example. Uh, I mean, gay marriage, even though she backed away from the issue later on, she could actually have taken credit for that and used that as a you know way to boost her popularity and other many other many other similar issues. Um, it's kind of surprising to me actually. Right, Nicola, do you think this the Panama maybe severing ties with Taiwan issue led to this low poll ratings, or do you think it was more domestic issues that probably have led to these low poll ratings? Well, maybe a bit of both, but I mean, her poll ratings were going down anyway, weren't they, even before Panama? Um, yeah, I've got this one here. In fact, this is from last November. This is a TVBS poll from last November. Apparently, TVBS had a poll that said she had a 26%. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Panama issue is unfortunate for Tsai in that it's completely out of her control. I mean, what can she do about that? If if China wants to buy off Panama, then they're going to do that. Um, I think Brian makes a good point that um, she hasn't shown decisive leadership on certain issues, that she has been too timid. Um, <clears throat> she had a very bold reform package when she was elected and she hasn't seemed to have the you know, be able to push through the courage of her convictions on some issues, like on on gay marriage. Um, a lot of people who supported Tsai, um, you know, when I was covering this story, I, I would I was speaking to the pro gay marriage lobby, and a lot of them felt disappointed. And these were kind of natural Tsai supporters who had voted for her because of her reform agenda, and then they were saying, "Well, we feel that she's kind of rolling back." And in the end, you know, she hasn't rolled back, but she wasn't showing them that kind of decisive leadership that they really wanted to see um, so I, I do I, I mean I don't know for sure uh, I think it's very difficult to say but I do think domestic domestic issues are probably playing more of a role um, in her decline in popularity I, I, I think you know any reasonable person would see that that she can't really control what happens in, to Panama or other diplomatic allies I do think people want to see um, a more bold approach towards China um, and cross-strait relations, um, and for her to be a bit more, more outspoken about that. All right, obviously, Brian. I mean, how many, how many, how much of a percentage of these people that disapprove of Tsai do you think are actually grassroots DPP supporters? Um, I think that particularly for young people, you know, I think their loyalty is not actually so yoked to a particular party. So, you know, um, they don't have attachment to the DPP, but in the lack, I mean, they're not going to go vote KMT for sure. So, you know, they would still go over for Tsai in the end. Um, for the DPP, for members of the DPP, I think that's also true. Just, you know, I think that Tsai is increasingly facing challenges in part from her own party. I mean, I think that's a, probably another factor. Um, you know, there's obviously dissenting voices within her, her, you know, within the DPP about which direction she should take a policy, what kind of stances she should take and, you know, what kind of messaging should she conduct to Taiwanese society? Um, but, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't see, like, you know, Tsai alienating the support base so much that they will all jump on the KMT. I, don't, I just don't think that's going to happen. But, you know, I think that, you know, she has, has alienated some of her supporters in a very fundamental way, and it, it's kind of surprising. You know, I, I, I would imagine that would happen, such as with any reform-minded candidate, but not so early. Right, and we're now going to take a short break, but of course we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we're going to jump right in with Taiwan remaining listed as being a Tier 1 country for the eighth consecutive year in the annual US State Department's Trafficking in Persons report. Now, I'm going to let ICRT's correspondent Matt Kay explain it, as he did so well in a report for us earlier this week. 
Taiwan remains a Tier 1 nation in the U.S. report as China, at Tier 3, is among the world's worst offenders in human trafficking and forced labor. The State Department report cites Taiwan's sustained efforts with 134 investigations, including cases of foreign fishermen, 56 trafficker convictions, and 263 victims helped. But the report says Taiwan remains a destination or source of forced labor and sex trafficking victims and judges in many cases sentence traffickers to lenient penalties and sometimes treat labor trafficking cases as labor disputes. It recommends tougher sentences, prosecution of fishing vessel owners and better protection of domestic workers. And President Tsai Ing-wen has reaffirmed her administration's commitment to combating human trafficking. And speaking after the release of the report, she said that Taiwan is committed to working with all stakeholders to fight human trafficking. So, I mean, Brian, Tier 1, I guess it could get worse, but could it get better? Um, I mean, Tier 1 is the currently the best category, so I mean, that's that's pretty good for Taiwan. I mean, Taiwan's been on that, been a Tier 1 country for some time, um, running for, I think, eight years, I believe. But I think that, you know, that also does kind of mask the issue that, you know, there are there's abuse of migrant workers in Taiwan on a large scale, and that's not viewed as human trafficking per se, but it is it is very often the same issue. Um, you know, there's a lot of power to broker agencies, which there's been a lot of legal attempts to kind of check, in the, particularly in the past year. But, you know, with regards to migrant workers at home, domestic workers, that's to say, or fishermen on the high seas, you know, there's still these these issues. Um, I mean, you know, there's a 600,000 uh, migrant worker population in Taiwan, which is a very large part of the population. And so... You know, we'll see about that. But I mean, definitely relative to other countries of the region, particularly China, I mean, Taiwan is doing a better job and it has for some time. Yeah, apparently Taiwan was only one of five Asian countries in the Tier 1 section of this report, along with South Korea, the Philippines, Armenia and Israel. So, Nicola, Tier 1 is, is, is obviously quite good. Yeah, I mean, you know, credit where credit's due. It's, it's good to take a, a pat on the back for it. Um at the same time, you you don't want it to allow uh, yourself to become complacent because, as Brian says, there are still uh, very serious issues to be sorted. Um, you know, if you look at domestic workers, Indonesia was even saying this month that they, they still want their domestic workers in Taiwan to be paid the, the minimum wage. Um, and, they're, you know, it's kind of inconceivable that they are not being paid the minimum wage. And for a lot of these uh, domestic workers, uh, it's completely unregulated. Nobody knows how many hours they're working. They're having to stay with their host families. Um, and people just don't know if they're being abused in any way and so i think that's something that that you know you can't take your your foot off the off the gas pedal you have to like keep um looking at what improvements need to be made and and also for for fishing um I mean, it was great to see that uh, this Taiwanese activist, uh, Alison Lee, that she got uh, recognition. That that was, um, you know, that that's really great to to, to see that and, and, and um, for her to be rewarded for her efforts. But she's also said that um, more needs to be done to help fishermen because when they're out in international waters, then domestic laws on labour standards just don't apply. Uh, and that's something that, that does definitely need to be changed. Right, and that was, of course, Alison Lee, the Secretary-General of the Elan Migrant Fishermen Union. 
our Fisher Persons Union, I guess we should really say. I think and it's mainly men, though, isn't it? I guess so, probably. And that's in recognition of her efforts to uphold the rights of foreign fishermen here in Taiwan, and she's the first Taiwanese citizen to ever receive the Hero Acting to End Modern Slavery Award from the US State Department. So, Brian, obviously Nicola was talking about the, the minimum wage for migrant mm. workers. I mean, do you see the government coming out and enforcing a minimum wage requirement for migrant workers? I think it's unlikely because I think that, you know, the government has not done a great job in terms of raising the minimum wage. I mean, there's been calls about this all over the world and labor activists, uh, including some of the ones that have been involved in migrant worker solidarity or support activities, have been calling for a minimum wage increase for, you know, just Taiwanese citizens, too. And that, you know, has not really gained traction, whether from the government or within society. So I think much less for migrant workers who are already somewhat peripheral and marginalized to begin with, I think that's, that's even a, a more difficult step. Um, I think I think there's this, still these kind of attitudes towards migrant workers that, you know, there are cheap labor Taiwan needs and that they can be made to work long hours in a way that you can't sometimes do for Taiwanese people. And it, it's, it's even very hard to convince society to let go of these kind of attitudes. So. And of course, the issue about the fishermen, this goes back to the, the, the argument is they're not covered by Taiwan's social, social laws, social payment systems, pension payments and social security systems, and etc. Health payments, basically, yeah. And the government had turned around and basically said, well, you know, many of them are hired overseas, so they're only put on the boats when the boats are overseas and they don't, they're not entitled to any of these benefits because they're actually not hired in Taiwan. Although they work for a Taiwanese fishing company or a fishing fleet. Do you, do you see that as fair, Nicola? No, I don't see that as fair. Um, I think there's a basic human rights question here. And um, a, a debate needs to be had. I mean, maybe uh, if they are being hired abroad, um, then maybe some rights might not apply in terms of benefits or health, you know, kind of health care or I don't know. It's just it's it's an issue that has to be looked into as to what they are entitled to, but their basic kind of human rights have to be respected. And, and a lot of these, a lot of these guys are completely abused, not just in the way that they're paid and treated, but also physically. So I, you know, I do think that they definitely need to have a fair wage um, and decent um, benefits, whether that's exactly the same as Taiwanese employees that are hired in Taiwan um, that's a question that needs to be addressed, but at least give them kind of basic human dignity and and just, you know, a fair wage um, and protection from abuse. If, if these are Taiwanese companies, then the government does absolutely has to put pressure on them and absolutely has to take action. Um, yeah, I would say that I think that it, uh, 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 sorry. <laughs> I, it, it'll be hard, though, I think, to push for the Taiwanese government to do that, because I think with foreign labor, um, there's difficulties with, with white-collar labor. And so with high-risk environments, such as on the high seas, uh, I think it would be even a greater challenge pushing the government to, you know, expand who Taiwan's social benefits apply to. And I think I agree that that's a very unfortunate. Um, I think we'll have to see, though, whether, whether public pressure can be put on the government to make fundamental changes, um, more broad-sweeping labor reforms. And as if there's not enough pressure on the government at the moment from the public... Because, of course, there was more 
public pressure on the government this week when reports appeared in the local media that said that the government is planning long-term electricity price hikes in order to recoup debts that have been incurred by the now mothballed fourth nuclear power plant. And those debts reportedly stand at a staggering £283 billion NT. Now, of course, the nuclear plant was mothballed in 2014 after a series of anti-nuclear protests plagued the Mara administration. But the government has denied that it plans to hike electricity rates simply to pay off the fourth nuclear power plant's debt. However, Cabinet spokesman Xu Guoyong this week wasn't very forthcoming about what the government actually plans to do about the plant, which is now sitting beautifully in Gongliao in New Taipei, not doing anything. And the Cabinet spokesperson simply said that no plans regarding the power plant's future have been sent to review. So what are they going to do with this eyesore in Gongliao, Brian, if they're not producing nuclear energy? Um, I mean, it's been sitting there for three years, and it's, it's very strange because, you know, it's a beach, and there are people that are, you know, tourists there, they're playing the beach, and there's this large nuclear reactor in the background. And I, I think the Thai administration just wants that to continue to be the case because only our reactor number four is such a controversial issue that when you push on that, that could lead to widespread social protest. It's a problem that's been inherited from previous administrations, so it's not particularly an issue the Thai administration created per se. But there's no almost good way to deal with number reactor number four, and I think it would be, it would be a very bad move if it decides to raise the issue of reactor number four in the in the public i think that you know it's probably more intelligent just kind of back away from the issue hope people forget about it but then then of course exactly then of course they're left with the debt exactly and this report did say that household and industrial electricity users would have to pay between five and seven billion nt over a period of five to ten years and i read one report apparently electricity bills could be hiked by about five thousand nt a year for individual household users i mean this is to pay off the debt for a mothballed nuclear power plant Mm -hmm. i mean the time industry has no good options here because it's either raise electricity prices which will you know lead to possibly the sharp decline in approval ratings or it's restart the nuclear reactors within taiwan which will solve the energy needs but that also just you know leads to criticism and protests from environmental groups and others so the time decision is really just caught between two bad choices and i think that it decided to go with the electricity choice which maybe is the choice which will not cause you know protests to happen on the streets against it but that's still going to lead to dissatisfaction against the side administration so brian what do you think if you, if you were suddenly president and mm-hmm. they said to you what do you want to do about this fourth nuclear power plant then brian what would you say i think probably the better option is to you know to raise electricity prices but i would do it in a way which is leads the public to have faith in where the administration is going. I think that a lot of Taiwan's industry, energy industry, is is widely distrusted by the public because of the fact that Thai power exists and, you know, it's a monopoly. And it has a reputation for extremely opaque decision-making on everything from electricity prices, you know, possible hikes and so forth, to the issue of nuclear energy, you know, whether it wants to go in that direction or not, and so forth. And so, you know, there has to be some means by the Thai administration to convince the public that this is necessary and it's not just bowing down to corporate interests or the vested interests of Thai power and so forth. Of course, there have been calls to privatise the island's electricity sector, basically to take some issues away from Thai power and to privatise other parts. I mean, do you, do you see privatisation as a step forward, Nicola? Um, it's it's certainly an option. I think you'd probably see bigger um, rises in, in uh, power bills if you, if you privatised. Um, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an option to consider. 
Um, you know, I, I, I think they just need to be a little bit smart about it and not publicise every move um, that they make and, and just kind of try and quietly um, get those costs back and, and maybe do something just a bit creative with, with the building. I don't know, turn it into an art gallery or something. <laughs> Paint it so it looks like the background. And people will think it disappears. It actually, it's actually yeah. already blue. Or I was there a few years ago, and it's like this blue tarp, this giant blue tarp that's supposed to blend into the sky and the ocean, and it looks absurd. <laughs> of course, we did joke about the power plants here being by the sea. Now, there are several power plants here by the sea. Of course, one is in Pingdong, where people obviously bathe in the beach opposite it. That's right, yeah. I mean, I just think that, you know, Taiwan has in very inherent geographic limitations on where you can plant, the, you know, you can put these kind of power plants in. Oftentimes they're in tourist areas. I mean, that also just kind of is another way to, you know, ramp up opposition towards nuclear power plants. Because, you know, when you go on vacation to this nice place, there's a nuclear power plant next to you. And, you know, that issue is just is stuck in your head from then on. But you get the funky photo to stick on your social website. <laughs> That's right. Page, I guess, yes. That's right. You know, take I, a selfie by the I do like actor. the giraffe. There's a big giraffe when you leave Taipei. Oh, that's right. Yeah. On on the chimney. I think that's a good idea. Just paint giraffes and everything. That's on the incinerator. <laughs> right, is that what it is? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, that's nearly all we've got time for this week. But before we go, Taiwan made international news this week for the absurd. Yes, once again, Taiwan makes international news <laughs> for the absurd. Now, one of those such stories focused on a 72-year-old farmer from Pingdong who has been dubbed Taiwan's strongest grandfather after video of his gym routine went viral, while the other concerned what Sky News Australia described as a new massage trend, a trend that sees masseurs using meat cleavers to soothe customers' aching muscles. Now, the owner of the Ancient Art of Knife Therapy Education Centre in Taipei was quoted as saying that the treatment is originally from China and is 2,500 years old, but her group has created an original and new knife therapy. And she went on to say that everything has a yin and a yang, so instead of using one knife, her company uses two. And if a person wielding two meat cleavers over you while you try to relax doesn't sound that pleasant, then you're for sure not going to like the fact that the masseurs also burp regularly to, and I quote, spit out the bad energy they draw from the customers. So, a meat cleaver massage, Brian, with someone belching in your ear. I don't know, it sounds kind of nice to me. Um, I, I always have this, I, I see this, uh, I live by night market, so I see this very often. I pass by the, the knife massage stall, and you know, there's these guys hammering away with uh, with knives and I, I wonder about that. I mean, you know, hopefully they don't mix up their knives one day. You know, maybe one has a day job as a as a butcher, and you know, at night he moonlights as a knife massager. I hope there's no such individual out there. But uh. <laughs> so you never done it? You never walked no, past I've never it. Done that. I think I'll uh, do that. I, one day I should. Yeah, I think, you should I think do. Be. You should do. You should go and do it today and report back to us when you next come on the show. That's right. Hopefully with all your <laughs> hopefully with all your fingers and all your limbs intact. It's an interesting practice. I mean, you know, as with a lot of Chinese traditional medicine, you know, a lot of this stuff did die out in China. So it is preserved in, you know, places that were under Chinese influence, such as Taiwan or Japan or South Korea. Um, so these, these practices still exist. Um, but, you know, I think everyone wants to claim that they have their own new original spin on it. It's good marketing. So, Nicola, a knife massage with belching? No way. Absolutely <laughs> not. I, there's no way a, a belching swordsman is coming anywhere near me i love a good massage but i just don't have enough faith in, in human nature <laughs> all right how about a birthday present for your husband uh, you could buy yeah. him a seat it must be a season ticket or a, you know you can buy so many knife massages yeah well we do have our, our our first wedding anniversary coming up that could be a good gift for him there you go yeah you could also he can try it first i was wondering how sharp these knives are though 
Because there's video. Video came with this story, and you couldn't actually see how sharp the knives were. I presume, Brian, the ones in the, mar- the night market are sharp or not sharp? I haven't seen anyone get injured, but I think they're probably blunt. Um, I, I imagine it's just the same as any other blunt instrument they use for massage, just it happens to be a knife. Um, I, I don't know the total history behind you know where this practice came from, why specifically knives, but... It is very interesting that way. I mean, there's all this stuff within uh, in Taoism about you know like the butcher and knives, and you know you sense the where the muscles are in the ox, and that's how you cut. And so maybe you know that's probably that. I guess that's probably the idea, except with humans, and you know you're not chopping up their flesh. Right, and if you happen to live in Taipei, the Ancient Art of Knife Therapy Education Centre sits on Nanjing West Road, and according to its Facebook page, it's open daily from 9:30 a.m. until 9 p.m. If you fancy knives and a massage where they belch but there you go anyway that's where we'll leave it this week and i've been joined in the studio by brian hugh good night and nicholas smith good night thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of taiwan this week here on icrt with me gavin phipps and don't forget to check out taiwan this week podcasts on itunes and android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.